0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the Americano podcast. I'm sorry it's been a while since the last episode, but that's because we've been very busy putting together and launching the first edition of The Spectator in America, the Spectator US edition. And I'd like to encourage all Americano listeners to subscribe, which they can do by going to www.spectator.us forward slash subscribe and there you can take advantage of one of our offers. I would encourage you to do that. Um, We're all pretty pleased with the magazine and how it's come out. So back to Americano. I am joined today by Daniel McCarthy, who is a contributing editor of Spectator USA, as well as the editor of Modern Age. And we're gonna be discussing impeachment and the future of the Republican and Democratic parties. Dan, you wrote an excellent piece for us yesterday in which you said that impeachment was regime suicide. Can you take us through exactly what you
1: meant by that? Well, the ironic thing about both the downfall of Richard Nixon and the uh, Bill Clinton impeachment in 1998 is that arguably both of those experiences, as unpleasant as they were for the country, they kind of tested America's institutions and America's institutions passed the test. So Nixon did not have to be impeached. The mere fact that his support was collapsing And it was clear that an impeachment would happen and that he would very likely be convicted and removed was enough to motivate him to resign. And following his resignation, there were actually a series of much more important events involving examinations by the Church Committee and others of uh, how the FBI and CIA and other American intelligence agencies had involved themselves in the political process. So in a way, that was actually more important, I think, uh, in terms of sort of Americans and their understanding of their government than the Nixon resignation. But the Nixon resignation itself was a test that the country passed. And I think everyone felt like uh, the country had gotten beyond this. It was over and um, it wound up not. It, it cast a little bit of a shadow, of course, on the 1976 election, which was the next presidential election between uh, Gerald Ford, who had been you know Nixon's VP, and uh, Jimmy Carter. But it wasn't, you know, a kind of overwhelmingly important issue. And then with the Clinton impeachment in 1998, it happened, it failed to get a majority. The fact that you couldn't even get a simple majority in favor of uh, convicting and removing Bill Clinton in 1998 in a Republican-controlled Senate really meant that uh, the country's judgment as a whole, even among many Republicans, was that um, that Clinton shouldn't have been removed. And as a result, you know, I don't want to say that there were no hard feelings after the Clinton impeachment. But again, there was this sense the country had overall come to a definite conclusion and there was not a kind of a lingering, festering wound. And then in the 2000 election between Gore and um, and George W. Bush, there really wasn't much of a shadow of the Bill Clinton impeachment remaining. With, with Trump, uh, I think that you have a very different situation where... There's been this loss of a sense of America as a cohesive nation, as having a kind of national consensus. call it a national, yeah, national consensus, yeah. There's a sense now that uh, we're already very much fragmented, and that there are these very powerful fault lines between the parties and between different regions of the country. And so it seems to me that you're not going to see the kind of national coming together that you did even after the uh, Watergate scandal and even after the Bill Clinton scandal. I'm not saying those weren't traumatic events, But they were traumatic events, again, where the country was able to kind of reach a firm conclusion. With the uh, Trump situation, I think you're going to see lingering, festering, really, you know, sort of intense uh, animosity, especially since the impeachment effort is almost certainly going to fail. But if we see the kind of national consensus
0: of America, the
1: democratic consensus
0: you talk about in your piece, if we see that as a post-Second World War phenomenon that lasted up until the 90s and and early noughties, maybe... Do you think that it just deteriorated, obviously it deteriorated for a large number of reasons, but do you think perhaps those impeachments that you talked about, the Nixon and Clinton ones, themselves tore away at the consensus?
1: They did to some extent. Uh, they certainly had an effect of uh, weakening it. Although, with respect to uh, the Nixon situation, it's interesting because Nixon wins you know, a 49-state landslide in 1972. He wins the electoral votes of 49 states. His uh, popularity, he actually... there's a, a, You only get a majority of the country saying that uh, Nixon should be impeached and removed in the last month of his presidency. So not until a month before he resigns do you actually find over 50% of the country saying that he should go. Yes. So... And you had a very different media environment there. And a very different media environment as well. And also the two parties were very different. The, the Republican Party had conservatives and liberals. The Democratic Party had its southern wing as well as having a progressive wing. So there was much more of a jumbled sensibility. And this, out of this jumble, you actually got more of a consensus. There was more of this sense of, you know, the parties themselves have their differences. They have differences between the two parties. But therefore, we're all Americans. We all have to kind of reach a judgment together. Now that sensibility is gone, and in part, yes, it was Watergate and the aftermath of Watergate, and in part it was things like the Clinton impeachment. The Clinton impeachment happened, by the way, because the Republicans seemed to believe that they could still tap into that kind of consensus. Mm. They seemed to think that if they could prove factually, which they did, that Bill Clinton had um, lied under oath, that therefore they would be able to sort of bring all Americans together to say the facts in themselves have convicted Bill Clinton, and therefore he should be convicted and removed through the impeachment process which didn't happen. People said, you, for partisan purposes, are taking a very small issue, this, um, you know, sort of uh, affair with Monica Lewinsky and the fact he lied about it, under oath. And you're trying to blow this up into something to justify impeachment, when in fact, it really doesn't. It's a very small matter. And so the the public basically was not on the side of
0: the Republicans. And let's get on to the the suicide aspect of this now with Trump. I mean, it feels to me just in, in a sort of less profound long term way, it feels to me like a suicidal step for the Democrats to be taking. I mean, I think it's it's a great way for them to
1: manage to lose an election that they could very well win. It's very high stakes. And there are many ways the Democrats can wind up losing this. One is if the American people decide that impeachment is a circus and it's unjustified and they wind up uh, being a little more sympathetic to Trump afterwards than they had been beforehand. Now, Trump's tweets in the last few days have seemed so kind of panicked that um, one wonders if that's going to be the case. One wonders if, in fact, the American public will be more anti-Trump as a result of impeachment because of the way he conducts himself um, in, under the stress. But do you think, I mean, I often think there's this sort of animal
0: cunning with Trump and that perhaps he is trying to look more panicked because he sees the opportunity. That's,
1: in the past, every time it has seemed as if Trump has done himself in and has said the wrong thing, he's wound up bouncing back. Maybe that will happen again or maybe this is the time when his luck runs out and he's on his ninth life and yeah. the cat is, you know, dead after this. Uh, With Trump, it is absolutely difficult to predict. Uh, But there are other ways that Democrats can wind up losing, right? So even if they wound up getting exactly what they wanted and they removed Trump from office, that makes Mike Pence president. And then Mike Pence would, uh, you know, be the obvious Republican nominee in 2020. He's, you know, Democrats will say that he is blemished by having connection with Trump. But personally, he's going to be extremely different from Trump. So the question will be, will the American people feel as if Pence is the same sort of volatile, controversial figure that Trump is, or whether will they feel that uh, Pence is a kind of reassuring figure, and that America doesn't want to have three presidents in the span of twelve months, in which case it seems to me that Pence would be in a very good position to win the twenty twenty election, and Democrats would then and Pence would actually be eligible to run then for another term in twenty twenty four. But it's interesting you say that because I, I mean
0: I'd have thought from your other things you've written that you'd see Pence as a as a true representative of a party that really no longer has a foothold in America.
1: Oh, I think that's generally right. But the only circumstance where I think Pence would have a good chance is one in which uh, Republicans are so outraged, pro-Trump Republicans, that is, 90% of the party, is so outraged at uh, the betrayal of the president that they wind up uh, supporting Pence as a way to stick it to the Democrats for what they did with impeachment. Yes. So I think it would actually, it's the one thing that would really superglue the Donald Trump base to Mike Pence. It's the only, that's the only thing that could. The absolutely (laughs) only thing that would, that's right.
0: But, I mean, of course, if that scenario happens, you could easily have Trump running as an independent or something like that. he could You can't.
1: Ins- if you get impeached and removed. No, no, uh, sorry,
0: but if he I thought the, we were talking about if he if he stood down without being impeached, you think he could be removed?
1: Well, I don't really think he can be removed. I'm no. saying uh, hypothetically, if the Democrats got exactly what they wanted, yes. know, and they say that they are doing this in good faith and that they believe he can be removed. Yes. if If they believe that he can't be removed, then I would say this whole effort is very much in bad faith, that it's only an electoral ploy. And if that's the case, then I think um, even people who don't like Trump should look at what the Democrats are doing and say, you should not be using something as serious as impeachment for mere political purposes like this, that it's in fact even worse than what was done with Bill Clinton in the 1990s. And how true, it's
0: been speculated quite a lot that um, Pelosi and the Democrats are playing a clever double game here because they want to also take down Biden and they see this as a way of hurting Biden By attacking Trump, because obviously exposes. uh, Yeah, I don't think
1: that's the case with Pelosi. Whether there are other factions in the Democratic Party that would like to see this take down Biden as well, I think that's quite possible. And it is interesting to me that you know you had the left wing—I don't want to say the pro-Sanders wing necessarily of the party, but the left wing of the Democratic Party—it was putting a lot of pressure on Nancy Pelosi to begin some sort of impeachment proceeding. And it seems to me that that left wing would not be sad at all to see Joe Biden go down. They would yes. much prefer to have Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. It's more the, the squad than the Bernie Sanders wing
0: of the party. That's it's really more important. the squad, that's yeah. right.
1: But yeah. I think, you know, the squad and the activist, the activist base behind the squad is certainly more comfortable with a Warren or a Sanders than they are with a Biden. Yeah, the
0: squad we should explain for English listeners is the four radical socialist congresswomen who are causing so much fuss. That's uh, right. Uh,
1: Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is uh, the ringleader, so ringleader.
0: And uh, then it's Ilhan Omar, Presley and... Rashida Klib. And Rashida yeah. Yes. yeah, And so, I mean, let's talk about this, this, you know, how you... Regardless of what happens with Pence and things, you think impeachment could cause a sort of collapse in... The consensus could go from vanishing to completely gone. You think it can... Oh, I think that's right, yes. I mean, a lot of people love to talk about civil war, the, I know, but are we talking this is a sort of way towards a civil war?
1: No, I, what we're talking about in some ways is almost parallel to what we're seeing happening in Britain right now, Very, where yeah. there's this sense that these institutions, especially with these innovations like the new Supreme Court that Tony Blair introduced and uh, the Fixed Term Parliaments Act and so forth, that they've actually added up to a series of institutions that make governing impossible. And I think that's what we'd be headed towards in the short run with the United States. That basically, there would be no possible, even functional governing consensus, even a plurality uh, governing consensus. The the the, checks and balances would just be a deadlock. Not just just the checks and balances, but the the people themselves, the American people. I think the, the Republicans would be radicalized by The impeachment effort, they will, you know, see Democrats as basically trying to stage a coup d'etat, as trying to, you know, overturn an election, basically overturn two elections, right? Trying to retroactively overturn the 2016 election and proactively, you know, interfere in the 2020 election rather than leaving this decision to the people, right? So impeachment is a political process conducted by Congress as opposed to a process in which the American people have a you know more or less direct say as with presidential election. I say more or less because, of course, the Electoral College complicates things a little bit. But um, there's still a sense that the American people feel as if they have a direct, you know, uh, engagement with that process. Whereas with impeachment, it really is uh, something conducted by the media and Mm. something conducted by uh, the Democrats who control Congress. It's not uh, something that speaks for America as a whole.
0: And let's talk more about that Brexit comparison, because something that fascinates me, obviously. But I think, I mean, in Britain, we're already seeing the breakup a little bit of the two main establishment parties. I mean, you've had parties splitting off now. You had Change UK, uh, the Brexit party. And it's because the established parties don't really have large enough constituencies in themselves. I don't think the breakup has been as dramatic as people thought. And in fact, at the last election, what was odd is that the, both the parties saw an increase in the mm-hmm. share of their vote. Do you think we could see finally a situation in America where the two parties start to break up and, I mean, the Libertarian Party's
1: never been a great success here, but you've had third-party candidates have success. You could see an opening maybe for an independent uh, candidate of some sort, uh, although it's hard to imagine who that would be. You know, maybe Tucker Carlson, uh, yeah. you know, a figure like that. Well, because everyone, um, I mean, I suppose in the media, everyone would assume that candidate would have to be down
0: the middle, or down in, it would in not the center, it wouldn't be centre, down the middle. I, down I, the middle you're
1: yeah. right, that is the assumption that people in the media have. They think of it as being a Michael Bloomberg kind of character. Uh, and, in fact, it would be someone from really either the far right or far left. I, mean, yeah. I shouldn't say – when I say far right or far left, what I mean is simply not within the establishment yes. of either one of the you know, left or parties.
0: <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> you don't I'm, not, use I'm, that not, I'm not
1: saying some sort of lunatic, but what I'm saying, saying is someone who's simply not institutionally yeah. uh, embedded within
0: the Well, parties. Tucker Carlson isn't a lunatic. He's a, he's a very intelligent Commentator and right. Commentator and, he, and, he, yeah. and he's
1: not a politician. He's not within the Republican Party as yes. you know, a kind of establishment figure. Basically, what I'm saying is I think you'd have a Trump, but instead of doing what Trump did in 2016, someone might just run you know, directly as an independent. Although even that, you know, as Ross Perot showed, is a difficult path to follow. It seems to me that you could get a more chaotic situation where the two parties as simply umbrellas still exist, but they become much more factionalized and broken down underneath those umbrellas. Yes. And I mean, you're perhaps already seeing that in the Republican Party a bit. Well, in the Republican Party, you're, you're seeing, I think, a steady change and shift from the kind of post-Reaganite party that you had with the two George Bushes, uh, a party that tried to be a little bit conservative, but also somewhat centrist and uh, somewhat able to um, uphold the you know military interventionist consensus and uphold the welfare state and, you know, simply try to do these things more administratively, intelligently, perhaps. Yes. Um, or uphold the regime, as you might call it. Uh, uphold the regime, exactly yeah. right. So you had in a base, basically, I mean, Reagan, you know, people talked about the Reagan revolution. Reagan was not necessarily an extremely radical president, but he really was quite a shift from the kind of presidents that not only on the Democratic side, but that a Eisenhower or Nixon had been in terms of their domestic policies. With the Bushes, you basically saw an attempt to kind of neuter the Reagan revolution and make it a bit more palatable for the American mainstream, so to speak, or at least what the establishment thought of as being the mainstream, what the elite thought of as being the mainstream. And actually, that didn't work out very well. My story in the, uh, the print uh, edition of Spectator USA yes. talks about this, about how, in fact, the electoral map that reelected George W. Bush in 2004 – was already a dying duck. It was something that, you know, barely succeeded in 2004 and was inevitably going to fail any time thereafter. And you call it anti-populist
0: republicanism in that piece, which I think is quite an interesting phrase, because it sort of says that, suggests that, as there indeed was, there was a sort of republican, uh, populist republicanism beforehand that, that that regime has sort of squashed for a long time.
1: That's right. And uh, I mean, it's actually very interesting because even though, in some ways, the Nixon domestic policy resembled that of, you know, certainly the first uh, George uh, Bush, uh, nevertheless, a lot of Nixon's supporters were people who were quite right wing and populist, especially in 1972, when it was a contrast between Nixon and George McGovern. You know, that was Nixon's silent majority, as he called it. And the silent majority was also very similar to the Reagan Democrats in the Reagan era. And these were people who were not necessarily uh, free market ideologues. They were people who were actually very comfortable with certain aspects of um, sort of the welfare state or uh, policies that were designed to help the working class or the middle class. And they were they were basically a, a proto-populist movement. Mm. And during the Bush, the, the two Bush uh, presidencies, that was kind of shoved under the carpet. And there was this sense that, well, we want to keep the votes that these folks are giving us. However, we will just give them the policies that Wall Street wants to have. And there was this sense that you could reconcile that, and the way to reconcile it was by converting the Reagan Democrats, um, who are basically sort of uh, union blue-collar worker types, just put them into uh, evangelical churches, mm. and that will glue them to the Republican Party. <laughs> yeah. And it turned out that actually didn't work out very well, because in part, it actually, the evangelicals were a slightly different population than the, uh, the silent majority and the Reagan Democrats. But also, what wound up happening is that as the evangelical movement became more identified with the Republicans, uh, it became less popular. And you started seeing evangelicalism losing uh, some of its strength, especially among young people. Uh, that it had when it first entered politics,
0: and that the idea of that what we talked about in the 90s a lot of the values voter
1: was actually not really true it well, it was true. partly true, and it still is, but values voters, I think are also um, economic voters yeah and but there are two separate groups of economic voters there. There are the suburban types, uh, what you know are sometimes also called the soccer moms, and then there are uh, the rest of the country, the people who you know have worked in factories or who live in small towns. And uh, the the economic economic interests between these two groups are actually quite divergent. Mm. And values for a time was something that could kind of uh, stick those two groups together despite the economic tensions. But I think that is less the case now, especially because what you're seeing is that the people who feel economically most hard pressed also feel as if they should be willing to fight harder now on the values issues. Uh, this is the Saurabh Amari-David French divide. Yes. David French is basically popular with the economic winners, with the people who live in the suburbs and who are the, the, value, the, the soccer mom value voters. And I think Saurabh Amari's position, you know, which is more hardline and militant. Yes.
0: We did discuss this last time you were on, but we should probably fill in yeah. in case, in case uh, listeners don't remember. This is a sort of spat, a media spat between... Uh, David French, who's a writer at National Review, and Sorab who wrote a column against David French.
1: Yeah, Sorab and David French are both Christian conservatives. Yeah, But Sorabamari is rather more hardline. He's outraged, for example, by Drag Queen Story Hour and wants to have congressional hearings about this. And David French takes a more a civil libertarian, perhaps, version of Christian conservatism. And the interesting thing is, even though the politics of Trump are generally not about Christian conservatism, especially explicitly so. Nevertheless, the divide that you see between Amari and French mirrors quite exactly a divide you see among you know, sort of other types of voters over things like immigration, between the hardliners and the people who want a kind of conservatism that is able to uh, work with liberal institutions. And so that's why I think that you actually have this coalition. I, I sometimes call it, you know, sort of the, the faith and nation coalition that puts together the sort of sorab Amari types with the immigration restrictionists and, you know, the Trump base. So it's a very complicated happening, but it is a divide between, you know, that kind of hard right on the one hand and then the more liberal right uh, with David French and with the, well, with the never Trumpers. I mean, it's the yes. Jonah Goldberg and... Um, David Fromm and Bill Kristol and so forth. But as these factions sort of try to
0: stick together and form coalitions, we we seem to be quite a long way from that at the moment. And we also have, as you suggest in your piece about impeachment, a regime that is getting increasingly desperate and and is increasingly reluctant, as we see with Brexit, reluctant to face the ballot. That's exactly Uh, right, yes. And and so obviously impeachment is, lots of people have said this, but I think it's true that impeachment is a way of avoiding direct democracy. And uh, well, direct democracy is a misleading phrase, I know, but and, and it's similarly in Britain, we have the Supreme Court and we have the Labour Party ducking a general election in, in their attempt to thwart Brexit.
1: That's right. The, the risk here, and you see it happening in different ways on both the right and the left, is that a establishment that has lost, you know, sort of the mandate of heaven, that no longer has very much uh, popular support, will be able to circumvent democracy long enough to stay in power for a few more years, to get a couple more presidents uh, that are suitable for you know, sort of the 1990s mentality. And that what this does is it winds up building up the pressure, which is eventually going to explode, which we already did explode in terms of Brexit and Trump in 2016. But if you now try to reverse that and put this pressure back in the pressure cooker, it may very well come out even more explosively in the future. So Donald Trump might be only the beginning of the kind of populist figures that we see in politics and I, sec- I suspect they will be both on the left and on the right, yes. that, that uh, Sanders and Warren and Trump are only you know, sort of the first stage of what's coming if the establishment doesn't face the music. But you, it, Interestingly, you're seeing that very differently to how a lot of people see it,
0: which will be that sort of Trump flirted with this very dangerous politics and that sort of ignited the fire. What you're saying is igniting the fire is the people who are trying to put it, put it out. That's there, exactly I'm right. Sure. I
1: mean, but, but the ironic thing is that the, the establishment understands this so you recall back in, uh, it's a long time ago now, 2008, Bill Kristol put uh, Sarah Palin on the Republican ticket as John McCain's running mate. Yeah. Why did he do that? Because he understood this dynamic. Yeah. He's, he's, you know, he's a smart guy. I, I disagree with him on almost all, everything. But um, he understood that John McCain did not have the legitimacy in the eyes of the Republican Party's own base. Whereas Sarah Palin had, a, you know... Uh, it was a sort of elite move. It was give, give the rubes something, right? Give they the populists something. Give the populace. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. even then they understood that if they didn't do something to secure that base, they would be in serious trouble. And George W. Bush in 2004, four years before the uh, McCain-Palin ticket, George W. Bush, when he did the values voters thing... That, too, was a desperate ploy to try to, you know, sort of bridge this gap. It was very, it's been very clear, really, for the 20 years now that the Republican Party is pulling apart in terms of the sort of uh, the militancy and the, con- the sort of right conservatism of the base mm. and the, you know, sort of center-right liberalism of the elite. Yes. And various attempts to bridge that, Bush in 2004 with values voters, McCain and, uh, in 2008 but with Palin on his ticket, have failed. And Trump Trump did the opposite to the in exactly the, in the picking Pence as a sort of establishment. Well, Pence wasn't. Would... Pence was a choice, not so much because he was establishment, but because he was a Christian conservative who would reassure Christian conservative voters that even though Trump himself yeah. clearly is not a paragon of Christian virtue, <laughs> that nonetheless the Christian uh, part of the party, which is a big part of the base, yes. would still have a prominent seat at the table and would have uh, a powerful voice in the administration. And, you know, Trump has been very good about identifying the constituencies within the party who are willing to support him Mm. and giving them what they want, even to the point of, you know, giving the neocons something by putting John Bolton in as his uh, national security advisor. Now, obviously, he wasn't going to go to war for the neocons, but he would at least give them a few personnel uh,
0: slots. It's interesting to the the, the Christian element to it, because Trump, um, in his UN speech last week, mentioned... LGBTQ rights as, as being very important. And that's not the sort of rhetoric you might have expected from, you, you would expect from Pence. Is that, that would be fair to say?
1: It's hard to say. Pence actually got into a lot of trouble a few years ago because of this uh, Religious Freedom Restoration Act mm. within uh, the state of Indiana. The Republican legislature in Indiana passed this, uh, what's called a RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And Pence uh, wound up, I think he vetoed it in the end, or at least he certainly circumvented it Mm. in order to not have corporate America boycott the state of Indiana because Indiana was not providing enough protections to you know sort of LGBTQ, however many letters I'm now supposed to use, (laughs) alphabet Americans, basically. So Pence has actually been a little bit more pragmatic on these questions than his reputation would indicate. But you're right, with Trump, uh, you also saw this uh, at the uh, Republican Convention in two thousand and sixteen, so you had peter Thiel, who 's you know an mm-hmm. openly gay man and uh, and also I think Ivanka Trump, both of them mentioned uh, you know sort of gay rights as being things that belong in the Republican party now yes. and that would be would have been unimaginable you know in two thousand or two thousand and four but even though you have that happening, you also have Trump giving Christian conservatives the policies they want in terms of religious protections and also the appointments they want in terms of uh, the j- judiciary. So Trump is able to satisfy these very different constituencies in a quite in, uh, sort of intelligent way. Yes, and, and, and he, in fact, he may even be
0: speaking to a, a new liberal consensus uh, about religious values versus you know, gay rights or things like that.
1: Well, I wouldn't say a religious, uh, I wouldn't say a liberal consensus. Smaller small liberal, yeah. uh, Even then, I would say it is Trump's sense of transactional politics He understands this group can give up so much, but it can't give up anymore. And this other group can give up so much, but it has its limits as well. Mm. And so you're able to actually piece together a coalition, even of people who dislike one another or have principal differences with one another, as long as you abide by certain limits within the lines of the coalition. And Trump, you know, as a old time real estate guy, has an intuitive feel for this. It's also something you pick up in New York City because New York City has so many different ethnic and religious and other sorts of political blocks that in order to survive within the politics of the city, you have to have a brilliant sense of coalition politics. Mm. And Trump has that. And that transactional sense is something that I think is, serves him well and serves him better than a more ideological kind of politics serves uh, his rivals. And do you think his transactional sense will help him get out of the impeachment
0: crisis, if it indeed is a crisis.
1: Well, it's, as I say, it's more of a crisis for the regime and its legitimacy than it is for Trump. I think it's a very um, high hurdle to get across for the Democrats to actually convict and remove Donald Trump, considering, you know, this is the first time we've seen an impeachment where the president's party controlled the Senate. I mean, this mm. is certainly the first time in in modern times with Nixon and with uh, with Clinton, both times it was the opposite party that was in control of the Senate. So you're taking on a Republican majority and you need to get a two-thirds supermajority in order to convict and remove Trump. That, I think, is going to be impossible. So basically what you're seeing here is something that's intended to embarrass the Republican Senate, something that uh, Democrats will use against Republican senators in the 2020 election, and something that is intended to embarrass and damage Donald Trump heading into the 2020 uh, election. But I don't think it's a good faith attempt attempt to, you know, do justice and uh, remove uh, Donald Trump for principled reasons, because nobody imagines that that can actually happen. What I find
0: amazing is that anybody believes that it's a good faith. Do you think people in their minds, in their sort of deep consciences, actually believe this is a good faith attempt? Well, to, certainly, to, to, to...
1: the polling supports exactly what you say. That mm. uh, you know, I think something like 51 uh, percent of Americans are saying that they see this as being primarily a political ploy, as opposed to something that is you know has merits. Um, maybe that will change. You know, it's, it's hard to say what will happen. But I think Americans are becoming increasingly, you know, sort of aware that uh, impeachment is a political process. With Nixon, you could say, you know, what had happened was so bad that everyone had to agree that, this, that his mm-hmm. resignation was necessary. With Clinton, it was clear that, you know, what Clinton had done was um, contrary to the law and the, the sa- sanctity of the law that he should have been up- upholding. But the matter itself was so small that it wasn't something to merit impeachment. Now what you're seeing is this real fracturing of, you know, sort of the Democratic activist base insists that Donald Trump is a fascist, he's a racist, he is destroying America, and he must be removed. And that's, you know, maybe, you know, 30% of uh, the Democratic Party that believes that in a really hardcore, you know, take no prisoners way. And then 30% of the Republican Party believes exactly the opposite, that Donald Trump is the country's savior. And any attempt to remove him is a coup d'etat and is uh, attempted revolution. That, you know, we're going to have guillotines and jacobins in the streets and we need to fight back against this. So it's all this impeachment uh, thing is doing is radicalizing people. And then everyone in the middle, they look at this and they say, this is being fought out between two quite radical wings of the Republicans and Democrats. And that um, there's nothing that smacks of good faith, you know, sort of law and order here. This is just politics being driven by radical elements. Dan, it's
0: always fascinating to talk to you. I hope we'll do another impeachment podcast in the near future. Oh, I'm sure we will. Thanks, (laughs) Freddie. Thanks, Dan. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Americano. And I'd like to encourage you all to give us your feedback, positive comments or constructive comments only, please, to podcast at spectator.co.uk and say anything you like there as long as it's reasonably polite.